0: Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources, or any other resources you find online, would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's word. Let's turn over to 1 Peter First, Peter. As you know, we are beginning a new preaching series today through this letter. I just want to take a brief moment to remind you of the importance of sequential, what they call sequential expository preaching. Meaning that we go verse by verse through a particular book of the Bible. Expository preaching, meaning that we're trying to draw out the meaning of the text. That's why the sermons that you will hear here, whether it be myself or someone filling the pulpit, it will always be trying to understand what the writer is saying. What does this text mean? Because in understanding what it means, what it meant then, and therefore what it will mean today, that's the only way that we can truly apply it to our lives. So so that's what we do in sequential expository preaching, is we just go verse by verse trying to draw out the divinely inspired meaning of the text, and that's what we will be doing in 1 Peter. So for the next many weeks... so into months, this is where we will be. So when we sit down, you can pretty well expect, you will hear, grab your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter, whatever chapter and verse we are in at that time. I've titled this series in 1 Peter, Faithful Sojourners, Walking Worthy in a Wayward World. Faithful Sojourners sojourners, walking worthy in a wayward world. And why is that? Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John seventeen sixteen. they are not of the world, speaking of his disciples, just as I am not of the world. We are living in this world as Christians, but we are not to be Of the world. We live here, but we are not to be like the permanent residents of the world. We live in the midst of a crooked generation, but we, as Christians, those who have been purchased by the precious blood of the Lamb, are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We are living in a very sinful world, in a sinful body. But we are to keep ourselves from sin. Not to mention that it is becoming increasingly difficult to be a true, faithful Christian. The world loves a Christian who keeps their faith to themselves. They don't really care for the Christian who is outspoken about the truth, not for the sake of argument, but so that some might be saved. Not that it's ever been easy to be a Christian. There's not a point in time in history where we can say, point to and say, this is when everyone loved Christians. Everyone loved the message of the gospel across the globe. Why? Because this world is in darkness and those in darkness hate the light. This world has always been wayward. Christians have always needed to be faithful sojourners. Why do we call it, where, where is this title coming from? Well, it's certainly going to be the message of First Peter, is how to be a faithful sojourner. But a sojourner is someone who is temporarily in the, a particular place. He is sojourning, traveling through to a different location. He's not a permanent resident of where he currently finds himself. Could there be anything that more adequately describes a Christian? We are in the world, but we're not of the world. We are temporary residents. We are aliens in this world. We are strangers in this world, but we must live faithfully. Though we are in the world, we cannot be of the world—that That is to say that God has a specific way for his people to live, no matter where they are, whether geographically or historically. There has always been a need for faithful Christians. But I would venture to say, perhaps just because of my vantage point in being alive on this point in the timeline in human history, that it seems like now more than ever, we need faithful Christians. We don't need cultural Christians. We don't need more cool, hip Christians. We need people who take God's word serious. We need Christians who take God serious. We need Christians who take sin in their life serious. Because these are serious matters. These aren't, This is not just a country club of morality here. This is very much a pathway to eternity, is it not? This is not very much us storing up for ourselves either treasures on earth or in heaven. This world is anti-Christian and anti-moral. We're even starting to see anti-Christian and anti-moral legislation in the works from our government. The land of the free. The one, the country who on the back of our money he says, in God we trust. What God are we talking about, though? See, as Christians, we serve Yahweh. We serve the God of the burning bush. We serve Jesus Christ, and he is Lord. He's Lord over this wayward world, and he is certainly Lord over our lives. There are lukewarm Christians aplenty, To the point that it's almost exasperating trying to live as a faithful disciple in this world. Yet we are called to be exactly that no matter the context that we find ourselves in. So the question begs to be asked then, how? How do we do that? How do we live as faithful sojourners? How can we walk worthy in a wayward world? I pray that our time together in 1 Peter... I pray that we will see that answer from the pages of Scripture, and that the Holy Spirit will empower us to live as faithful sojourners in our time here on this earth. So with that in mind, let's stand, let's read this morning's text. We're going to read just verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the living God. Father in heaven, as we now turn our eyes and our minds and our hearts to your word, we pray that you would empower your word this morning, both the preaching and the receiving, that you would empower each of us to receive your word, to see it clearly, to see great and wonderful things that we have not known. Lord, we want to be faithful sojourners. We want to walk worthy for you. Please teach us how. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. You can be seated. The title of today's sermon is Theological Greetings. I wonder if you can guess where that came from after you're reading that opening statement. Sure did pack a punch, didn't it? There's a lot to unpack there. So let's get started Um, just as a way of introduction to the letter We're going to look at, as you see there in your bulletin, we're going to look at the author, the audience, and the purpose of the letter, and then we'll deal with the work of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son in salvation specifically. So our main title today under the author, believe it or not, even though this letter opens up by saying Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, there is Much scholarly debate as to who is the author. Not, I would, I chose words poorly there. Not much scholarly debate, but some. There are some who say that this, the way that the letter is written, that it's too high and lofty a vocabulary to be Peter because he was an unlearned, uneducated man. But I think wisdom would lead us to say it says Peter, it was Peter pretty simple way to read the scriptures. Peter wrote this letter. The large majority of faithful scholars would say the same. There's not really much reason to disagree with that. We know who Peter is, don't we? Peter is the one who's got foot and mouth disease. He's constantly saying the wrong thing, but also saying the right thing when he was walking with Jesus, wasn't he? He was a sort of spokesman for the disciples, both saying the bad thing, but also the good thing. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? The disciples answered this, that, and the other. And then it was Peter who spoke up and said, after being asked, who do you say that I am? It was Peter who spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is no greater profession that a Christian can make. There is no greater arrival at truth that we can come to than believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it was also Peter who denied Christ three times after swearing up and down, No, Jesus, I would never, I will even die for you if I need to, Jesus. On his last night on this earth, and Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before dawn, you will deny me three times. And what happened? Exactly as Jesus had said. Peter denied the Lord three times. The same Lord that he had just confessed and professed so boldly that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, now a probably teenage girl making him quake and saying, I don't know this Jesus. No, it's not me. You have the wrong man. Truly, we are frail in our humanity, aren't we? But this is Peter. But that Peter is also not really that kind of coward anymore. If you remember in Acts, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, it was Peter who went out into the square and preached One of the most impactful sermons probably in human history, because that day 3,000 people came to repentance. And he preached boldly. He preached repentance. He preached of the sin of the people and their need for Jesus. And they fell under conviction and were saved. This is the Peter that we are dealing with now. And that's why he introduces himself, not as Peter the coward who knows Jesus, not as Peter, the one who always messes up but knows Jesus, but Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle simply means messenger, but in the term of, in the way of considering it for the apostles of the New Testament, it is a messenger who is given the authority of the one sending the message, namely Jesus Christ. They were given the authority of Almighty God. That's why when they wrote letters, they ended up in Holy Scripture. Because this is God-breathed. These are the divinely inspired words of God written by the hand of an apostle. So this is the lens that Peter gives us to understand what he's going to go on to say. Is that I'm an apostle. Listen to me. I'm an apostle, when I'm writing to you, it is with authority. Not just authority as in, I'm your boss. This is the authority of heaven. When the scriptures speak, it is as though it is God speaking directly to us. The audience. Peter says that he is writing to the elect exiles in the dispersion. Your translation might read to those who reside as aliens or exiles scattered throughout or to the pilgrims in the dispersion. It's different phrasing to convey the same essential meaning that he is writing to people who are sojourners in a strange land. These are Christians who are people that are in a place that is not their own. They are residing temporarily in a land. That does not belong to them. Now there's a sense in which this is Old Testament language that Jewish Christians would find familiar. After all, Peter himself was a Jew, converted to Christianity. And there's a sense in which they would recognize this type of language. You see, any time in the Old Testament that the Israelites were scattered throughout the land... They were the elect exiles in the dispersion. Elect exiles meaning God's chosen people. Exiles, rather, meaning that they are off in a place that is not their own. That's what this dispersion means. It's a technical term that just means dispersed or scattered about. Anytime the Israelites were not in Jerusalem, but they were forced out of Jerusalem... They were exiles. So they would have recognized this type of language, but now Peter is applying it not to the Jews, but to Christians. See, it's not that they're not in the Holy Land, that they're not in Jerusalem because that's their land, but it's that this is not our home. Everywhere we are, we are elect exiles in the dispersion. He references specific places, and these are just places north and northwest of Jerusalem. But in reality, he's just writing to Christians who are not in heaven yet, because we know that that is our home. We are not of this world. Really, everywhere that we reside, whether it be in Wolforth, Texas, Lubbock, Texas, Plainview, Massachusetts, Russia, Zimbabwe, We are always elect exiles in the dispersion until we make it home. But see, the Israelites, when they were not in Jerusalem, they would never quite belong. They had different customs, a different culture, and certainly a different God. In Nehemiah 1.8, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. In Jeremiah 29, 11, I know you know that verse. It's the most often, probably one of the most often twisted passages in Scripture. A few verses before there in verse 4, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The Israelites were in a place that was not their own. And that's the idea that Peter is bringing into this letter, is that they are scattered abroad in strange places where they don't belong. As Christians, you and I are waiting the new heavens and the new earth. That is our home. We are just passing through. We are sojourners in this world, making a temporary residence here until the day where the Lord takes us home into glory. And we certainly have a different culture, different set of worldviews, most certainly a different God. And that brings us to our purpose. These Christians were facing persecution because they are strangers in the land and because they're Christians, and Christianity has always been reviled. So they were facing persecution at least at some level. Now often when we think of persecution, the image comes to mind of government-imposed persecution, where the police and or the military goes door to door knocking, dragging out Christians into the street, taking them off to prison prison or internment camps of some sort. But there are many different forms of persecution. In the case of this letter, it's not likely that it was systemic government mandated persecution, but more along the lines of personal, societal, verbal persecution. In chapter 4, verse 4, Peter makes reference to the fact that they are not to live as the Gentiles do, but that the Gentiles are going to be surprised when they don't join in the same sins as them, and they will malign the Christians, meaning they will speak poorly of them. They will persecute them. They are slandered and spoken evil of when they do not follow in the same godless lifestyle as the Gentiles. This doesn't mean that there wasn't any physical persecution, but it seems that the main focus of persecution had to deal with the type that was dealt out by society. Does that sound familiar? The Israelites in the Old Testament, when they were scattered abroad, they were strangers in the land and often treated poorly. And now it's Christians as God's chosen people that we can expect the same thing to happen. And why? As I said a bit ago, we have different customs, a different culture, and a different God altogether. After all, persecution is built into our faith. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. Thus, Peter's let- letter is written to exhort and strengthen the brethren. In his final greetings you look over at chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. His purpose in writing this letter is to declare to them afresh the grace of God shown to them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The unfathomable grace shown to them in the forgiveness of their sins and the incredible power of regeneration that has made them each a new creation. In doing so, he exhorts the believers to stand firm in that grace of God. You are not like the world anymore. Stand firm in this grace. Stand firm in the midst of persecution. Stand firm in the midst of suffering. Stand firm as sojourners in a strange land. This is where the title of this series comes from, Faithful Sojourners. We are not of this world, but we are sojourning in this world. We are temporary residents awaiting our true home in the new heavens and the new earth. And thus, during our time in this wayward world, we must walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You can feel the urgency with which Peter is writing in this letter. As you're going to see, there are 105 total verses in this letter, and there are 38 imperatives. Well, What does that mean? That's an average of approximately one command every three verses. To put this into perspective, 1 John that we just finished up a little bit ago had 105 verses, but it only had 11 Imperatives. There is a totally different tone in this letter that he is writing with urgency, with conviction. He is writing to exhort the believers to live in godly lives in light of the grace of God in the midst of a godless culture. Is there a more timely letter that we could go through right now? Because you and I too. Need to live godly lives in the grace, in light of the grace of God in the midst of a godless culture. The beautiful thing about this letter is that he uses that grace of God as the backdrop or the motivating factor in our persevering in the midst of persecution. It's look at what God has done, remember what God has done, and stand firm in it. Stand firm in what he has done and persevere till the end. God's grace is what causes us to stand firm in the midst of every manner of suffering. Now let's turn our attention here to verse 2. You see, it's God's grace in saving us that Peter is displaying in his incredibly theological opening statement. Imagine getting this text message. Good morning, according to the Father who the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and the obedient, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Would you like to get lunch today? Boy, this is a very well thought out greeting, isn't it? And it really sets the tone that he is going to be framing all of his commands, all of the exhortation to persevere in the work that God has done. It's not often that in the opening few words of a letter, you get such a rich picture of the work of the triune God in salvation. And you'll notice as he talks about the work of salvation, there is a glaring agent missing in the process, you. God did this, the Spirit did that, the Son did this, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. God the Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, the Son spills His blood. Salvation is entirely a work of the triune God. So let's look here at the work of the Father. If you have something other than the ESV this morning, your translation moves the word elect or chosen to be a part of this statement. That we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That sentence construction makes it a lot easier for us to understand that Peter has a definite theology of the Father's foreknowledge and predestinating of those who are to be saved. We see the word elect or chosen, which is translating the word eklektos, which is used in the sense of selected by someone in preference to another or others selected by someone in preference to another or others. It's interesting that he would choose this sort of language in the opening greeting of this letter. What we see is he's being very specific with his audience. I'm writing to Christians. Christians are those who are God's chosen people. This, again, is an understanding of God and His nature and how He works that has its roots in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6-8, through 8, you don't have to turn there, but He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because... God brought them out of slavery slavery, because God chose to bring them out of slavery. He chose the Israelites out of all the people on the earth. He elected a group of people to be God's chosen people, a people holy to the Lord. And he did this out of love. He says, I set my love on you. What a beautiful picture of salvation this is. That you and I are in our own spiritual Egypt, our own slavery to our own depravity. And God brings us out of that because he set his love on you. This is what is meant by the word elect or chosen. Chosen you see the word foreknowledge. This is translating a word that means planning or plotting in advance of acting. It's only used one other time. It's used in Acts chapter 2, verses 20, verse 23. It says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Oh, by the way, that was... Peter's sermon. You did it, but God planned it. God planned this according to his own foreknowledge, and you crucified him. He's telling the audience that their action was only accomplishing God's intended purpose and plan. God has never learned anything God has never needed counsel. God has never needed help accomplishing his purpose. Everything that is happening is God's own definite plan and foreknowledge because all of creation is for the glory of God. Rest assured that the Lord will get his glory. God has chosen for himself a people that he has then planned a means of redemption and a path to redemption. So he planned the means of redemption, and then a pathway for each individual person, and then assured that each person would be redeemed. He has decided in his own good free will to choose for himself a people to be saved. He made a way for them to be saved, and then brought them into salvation. This is further indicated by verse 3. Look at verse 3, and we'll cover this more next week, but just to look at it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How can you say this? God's choosing of us in His foreknowledge That's how he caused us to be born again because he chose us. He set his love on us according to his own foreknowledge, his own design, his own plan, his own plotting, his own outworking of his plan of redemption. Truly, this is where your story of salvation began in the mind and heart of the father. It didn't start whenever you started living poorly and running from God. Your story of salvation started in eternity past when the Father set his heart on you in love and predestined you to salvation. How great a mercy and grace God has displayed towards us. He brought you out of slavery of sin into the freedom of knowing him. Now we see the work of the Spirit. Typically, when we are referring to the work of the triune God or referencing the triune God in any way, we have an order, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But for whatever reason, Peter here goes, Father, Spirit, Son. In our passage, he is saying, in the sanctification of the Spirit. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by, through, or in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit applies salvation to the person. Sanctification can have multiple uses. To be sanctified can mean both set apart for God and also the process by which we are becoming more and more devoted to God, growing in holiness. This is what sanctification means. It's both. You were both sanctified in the saving, in being washed clean of your sins, and you are also being sanctified. You are being made more like Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit. We are set apart from, for the Lord to be a people Holy to the Lord. You'll remember that from Deuteronomy chapter 7 that we just read a bit ago. So you see, the Father is not electing and saving, according to his foreknowledge, people to put in some sort of heavenly trophy case, just to say that he has won. He does this that we might be a people holy and growing in holiness to the Lord, a people being purified by him. For his own possession, zealous for good works. Read Titus chapter 2. It'll tell you all about it. Romans eight twenty nine. You know this one. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined not just to be saved, but to be conformed to the image of his Son. You were predestined to be sanctified by the setting you apart to make you holy to the Lord and to make you grow in holiness as you become more and more like Jesus. Do you see this remarkable plan and work being executed by the triune God? That's why we sing songs like, All glory be to Christ. All glory be to them. All glory be to Him, I mean. All glory be to our Lord for doing this way. Then we see the work of the Son. Sprinkling with his blood, as it says here, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Sprinkling with his blood is another Old Testament allusion you will remember from last week. We talked about the imagery from the sacrificial system, how on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat inside of the most holy place. And this was to atone for the people's sins, to cover the people's sins. Well, now in this new, better covenant, through the work of Jesus Christ, through the spilling of his blood, we are sprinkled once for all by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses sprinkles the blood of an animal on the people of Israel as a sign of the covenant. In verses 6 through 8, it says, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took of the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this sprinkling of blood was a sign of Israel's commitment to obey the Lord and the sealing of the covenant. And this is what we have now in Jesus. That when we now put our faith in Jesus, we are sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus, signifying that we are in this new covenant where we are committed to obey Jesus Christ. All of this just in the greeting. We really need to step our game up, don't we? We just say hello. In doing this, we are being obedient to Jesus Christ. And here we get a glimpse from Peter in the opening of what is to come in this letter, obedience to Christ. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. As Christians, we are his people. He has purchased us with his blood. Therefore, we must obey him on account of his authority and in light of his sacrifice. Christians are people who are both living in fear of sinning against the authority of God and also living in gratitude for his sacrifice. Look with me down at chapter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed. Conduct yourselves with fear, and also rest assured of Christ's finished work. The purpose of God foreordaining our salvation is that we would be a people holy to Him, and walking in obedience to Him. This is the work of the Holy Trinity in salvation. As J.I. Packer put it, The work of salvation is one in which all three act together. The Father purposing redemption, the Son securing it, and the Spirit applying it. The time that we will spend in 1 Peter, I pray, will teach us, strengthen us, and exhort us to be faithful sojourners in a wayward world. Living in light of the grace of God shown towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, here's the thing, we are strangers and sojourners, sorry, we are strangers and sojourners here on this earth, never quite belonging in this wayward world, but when we cross over into glory, we will not any longer be strangers, we will be fully known, we will be welcomed home. We will no longer be persecuted, but we will be thankful that we persevered through the persecution, for we will forever, for all time, reap the benefits of both the sacrifice of Christ and our persevering in faith in Christ. Jesus said that he has gone to prepare a place for us. And it's this place that we long for, where we shall be with him forever and ever. Church, the persecution at that time will all have been worth it. The suffering will all have been worth it. Your fight against sin will all have been worth it. We will be given the crown of life that we will only turn to gladly and joyously lay at his feet. We are strange and strangers to the world that's perishing, but we are fully known by the living God. Let's stand. We will not sing a song today. Uh, We were going to try something a little different. We're going to try doing a doxology at the end of the service after the song. Since we don't have a song to sing today because of our beautiful technical difficulties, uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask Jacob if you will go ahead and come up to the front and lead us in the de- doxology. And once he gets here, we'll pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for your foreordaining our salvation, for the Spirit applying it to us, and for the Son purchasing it for us. I pray that you would help us to persevere in light of your grace through all that comes our way. Help us to be faithful to you and to walk in a manner worthy to you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.